Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. This episode is kind of a lost or a recreation from the Professor Blastoff days when technology wasn't as good, and we talk about that. Uh, my guest, very talented artist, I don't say that lightly, look up his work, seanmica.com, M-I-C-K-A, incredible, very gifted. He, uh, I think, was an early guest, or at least midway through in the first part of Professor Blastoff. And uh, we were trying to use Skype, and it just wasn't working out. And uh, we were never never able to release it. And so there's this episode of Professor Blastoff that exists somewhere that's grainy and choppy and with uh, glitches and things. If I can find that somewhere, I don't think I have it. I don't know if anyone has it. But uh, we decided to recreate it with better technology, better equipment. So here's part one with Sean Micah on the Space Cave. This is going to be a tough one because uh, if you remember it, you know, you'll be like, oh, we talked about exactly this. Whereas I don't, the sound was so bad and we couldn't use it because it was like cutting in and out. And we were under the impression somehow that like the Earwolf engineers Mm. could could sort of feather it together or salvage it. And they just couldn't. They got back to us and like, guys, it's, it's too like... So sorry about that. You you live in this lore, which in the art world is probably uh, not unfamiliar to you. Of you know, there's this episode that no one knows about. It's somewhere. <laughs> yeah. It's on a hard the secret drive episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was also like I think at the beginning of a lot of podcasting. So I think probably a lot of glitches hadn't been really resolved. And I was probably using headphones with like really crappy speaker and yeah really i was at that apartment i was looking at a really shoddy internet connection too so yeah it was all, all those things, things going together and that i think we're still using skype which it seems like no one really uses now or anymore and yeah. uh what a dream that we live in this futuristic world we're like this i'll probably just use the sound that we're hearing here through if you're able to record yourself and send your smoother audio i could edit that in as well but I think during all this, when we're separate, I like to keep the sound that way also, because it kind of captures more that we are in different parts of the world. Sure, and yeah. uh, that's a preference thing, I suppose. Probably just laziest, laziness on my end. But we have Zoom. We have better tech. We have better Wi-Fi now. So I don't want to jinx like anything. Socialized to it because we've all been Zooming for like two years. Yeah. Or, or it's become a part of our, our daily life. Mm-hmm. And just from the the redo aspect of it, fewer people. You know, I had two other people in the room with me then, so we're all trying to kind of listen yeah. and chime in, and that's a lot when when the tech isn't very good. So this time, if something goes off, we can just stop and go, "Hey, just a sec, Sean. I didn't hear you there for a second. Yeah. I'm looking at a painting behind you on the wall, and it looks like a Charlie Russell Western painting. 
Did you do that? Is that like, I know sometimes artists will like put it, project something up and paint over it to see if they can match the technique or just freehand and be like, oh, I've always liked the West or what drew you to trying to do, I'm getting straight into art stuff. What drew you to doing? Well, first of all, I don't know that artist, so I should look them up. Oh, this is just, you just painted a cowboy on a horse with a, the West in, in the background. I, um, this is like my undergraduate work, like when I was an art student and, um, I was studying like graphic design as a major, but I wanted to do fine arts as a, um, like I wanted to pursue that more. Um, it's like maybe too much of the answer, but the, it, it relates because I used to go through archives, um, in the, as a designer, you're constantly searching through images, like what works. Um, now there's like tons of image libraries, but it, then it was just like, you'd go to the actual school library and go through, um, drawers of people like of uh, clippings basically mm -hmm. and i had collected all these clippings of like archetypal pictures of like the west um and like i have um so this which is like this you know it's a marlboro ad and i painted that to kind of like um i guess articulate that in a way but i so when i was painting at that time it was much more i was looking at the image and kind of um drawing in real life i wasn't doing like projection or drawing or planning out it was more free freehand um so it's a little bit more painterly and in that process it kind of makes the image of the cowboy a little less rugged and more like fluid and kind of um maybe not emasculates but it kind of it gets rid of the macho-ness of it in a way and kind of because makes it more you just because you freehanded it, like you're saying that if you had projected it and gotten it ultra precise, because the lines are more defined or like kind of controlled. locked in, controlled, yeah, yeah that creates yeah. more. That makes sense. I, and I'm it's far like there's away. more more ego in the painting <laughs> I'm doing now than the, this, or, or I don't know. But that was like what I was doing when I was younger, and I did a bunch of other paintings that have like a similar format where there's like a subject in the middle on a horizon in a landscape there's like a a moose and then i did ones of like a space shuttle a rocket launcher um and they're all kind of ideas of um um exploration in a way of like the, the west uh, or ideas of how do we naturalize mythologies of the west and mm -hmm. these tend to be where they start like images of nature and it's like yes the white man belongs in this landscape and you're like not really but you could construct that image through making these ads. Mm -hmm. So as a young designer, I was kind of interested in like thinking about critiquing or thinking about um, subverting that kind of logic, um, or I guess thinking about it more critically. Um, and that, that, so that's like the result of, of, I don't know, like freshman, no, I guess that was like senior year, like junior year, senior year in college. Well, I like it. I'm a little bit, further away and we're seeing it through zoom but there's something about just the general aesthetic of it that i enjoy it's pleasing and it does remind me of like charlie russell so to your thing of like, i'll write that down yeah they belong here he he and like uh, frederick remington did these really great um probably seen them in if you go to like estate sales or something these really beautiful um brass or i don't know no not brass what would they be just statues that they put to, you know, they did molds of and castings and kind of sculptures of a bucking horse or someone barely hanging in there, but little yeah. fine detail, like the fringe or the reins or little tiny 
linkages on chains for the bridle or, you know, it's, it's really meticulous and fine detail, which I, there's such a juxtaposition there for me of like the West is like you say, tough and rugged and machismo. And then to sit there and be making tiny little chains out of some material for a a sculpture is very delicate and very, it kind of contradicts. So the making of any of that art inherently it's not like you can like use a big gun and shoot it onto the canvas and be like, there's art, yeah. that's man art. You have yeah. to, there has to be a delicate procedure, which I think is pretty great. Um, anyway, the, the yeah. Charlie Russell, I think you would enjoy. Yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah. I mean, it, the, it, it was meant to kind of look like, like that kind of art in a way, mm-hmm. maybe in, in a slightly kitschy way. I but love it. I Thank meant you. it, I meant it very like sincerely. And I, and I like these paintings that they're fun. I haven't painted like this in quite a long time. Well, I was going to say on your website, everything looks, it's one of those things where you go, is that, is that just a photograph copy? Or... Is that a photograph? It's so meticulously detailed and probably a little less freedom in that you can't kind of keep things subjective. Photograph is. There's, is what it, yeah. It's like, there's more, there's a lot less um, paint, paint strokes and paint brushing. Um, so there's a little less like affect in the, in the image. But when you look at the, the, the sad thing is that the paintings don't, they reproduce well in photographs, but they become to look like photographs. So you kind of lose <laughs> the presence of them as paintings. Yeah. Um, so it's like usually like when I finally bring someone to the studio or someone comes to see the work in person at a show, they're usually like, oh, wow, this is like way different than I, than I read it, which I, it's like kind of a double-edged sword. It's like one, I've deceived the viewer, so I've gotten to question what they think they see, which is kind of great. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they just assume that and then they just are disinterested or, or not interested. But um, um, so I'm, tr- I'm trying to like pull a little bit more painting into, I've worked on this like recent new series of like tulips that I haven't, there's some of them are on my website, I think, but I've been like painting abstractions into them to kind of, bring like the painterly um, gesture back into it. And it works nicely because you have this very like um, well-executed image with this then like, it looks like someone just tripped in the studio and like dropped some paint (laughs) to a canvas, but it's done like very specifically and particularly. So it looks kind of, um, I don't know, intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm like trying to find a way where I can kind of bring those two worlds into each other so that they can be like, I don't know, so that you read it as like a painting or as paint. And then, you know, as a young painter, you realize, or I don't know, paint is like a really cool substance. So like when you really like gob it up and like throw it on a canvas, it has its own like life to it in a way. And that, so I've been like learning to appreciate a lot more abstract paintings and abstract artists and like trying to think about how they approached that. I don't know, that makes any sense. No, it does. I, I think it ties into, I'm probably trying to combine five questions into one uh, or vice, <laughs> vice versa maybe, but in starting and talking about the painting behind you, it made me think when I did uh, this variety show here in LA, I would have animators come. And a lot of times uh, if they were going to show a short or something they had made, sometimes if they sent me, I made this in, in school, in art school, I don't know if it works. A lot of times I loved it the most because it was mm. their technique wasn't great, but that you could tell like their enthusiasm, their excitement about making it was there. So later yeah. they would say, I've gotten much better and much more technical, but maybe their things then lacked a little bit of personality or I like seeing the the chisel marks or the brush strokes or for sure. Yeah. 
And then your stuff on your website, like we talked about, uh, or maybe it ties into what you were just saying that the graphic design, the, the way that things are placed, you know, with, if you had a square frame and then say, I noticed in the gun ones in particular, like these handguns, just so beautifully done, but where they are placed in the frame, the, the, yeah. the, the arrangement is meant it, to me from the out to draw your eye in a specific place, which as an artist, you can say, that's what I'm doing. I'm taking you and I'm pulling your attention. Yeah. Focalizing here. your, yeah, your, your gaze in a way. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I would think from the flip side of that, that could be really fun because you're in a lot of control there. But if you get so controlled where it starts to feel like a photograph where people are like, yeah, yeah, that d- I'm losing the personality a bit. You might want to yeah. flip back to the other way of like just abstract splash and paint around on a camera. Yeah, just like throw a little bit of paint on there. And then they're like, what's that? Did someone screw that up? And then, <laughs> then they're like a little bit more engaged. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it's nice with the, these like really clean edges, like this white, um, this like kind of controlled boundary. And then I've kind of um, completely... Um, I've broken the rules. It's like I've made a lot of rules for myself and then I just allowed them to break for a few minutes. And um, so one thing I've been thinking about is like I'll spend, you know, two weeks to a month on a painting and then I'll spend like just two to five minutes messing it up. Like just, and that's important. It's like, so don't spend a week messing it up because then you're probably doing the same thing you were doing when you were making it. You're like, you're, you're, you're not reacting. You're kind of like thinking too much. Um, when you say so messing kind of, it up, like how, how would you define that? You have a thing, maybe I, take I, a I'll picture. Just kind of just, I'll just like jam a brush and coach. <laughs> um, or I'll how take did... a little bit of paint and I'll just like kind of push it against the canvas, like almost like a little droplet. Mm-hmm. Um, almost, I've been making these little tiny Rorschachs. Like I put a little paint on a post-it note and fold it and then I'll just place it on the canvas. And I'll just do that once or twice and that's all you need really. Yeah. And I kind of developed because I do have this process where I have the um, original photograph underneath a sheet of mylar and I'm constantly dabbing colors on it to test if I've mixed the color correctly when I'm mixing my paint. And I use the same mylar for, you know, the same for a bunch of different paintings. So I'm always like slipping a new image in and then it has the colors from a different painting on it. And I'm always like, that looks really good. Maybe I need to replicate that. And so that's kind of, I use that as so as like my um, guide. Mm-hmm. It's like my, it's kind of like an accident that has become a way to make new work or something. I, I like the idea of work that can make, it can go back into itself in some way of like, if I'm doing something in the studio and it's like getting me to, from A to C, like that B, don't throw it away. Like that might be useful at some point, you know? Mm-hmm. Just like stick that in a pile somewhere. <laughs> it's to he to he. Um, some of that sounds to me um, like I'm like kind of nodding, going, "Oh yeah, yeah." But I don't know that I fully relate to it because I feel like as a painter's brain operates and sees things, and uh, especially having studied and gone to school and, and kind of knowing your process and your philosophy of it, it, it all the components that make an end result those are all pretty foreign to me. So hearing some of this language, I'm like, I I don't know if I fully relate to this. I'm thinking <laughs> of, and I've always been envious of it or jealous of that. Uh, I don't know if you saw the movie, uh, power of the dog. I haven't seen it yet, but a lot of people have talked about it. So there's this kid and going back to the old West, someone who doesn't really fit in, he's delicate, but his style, just the whole existence, who he is as a person seems very singular and specific. And just like, mm. 
I've always been jealous or envious of people that it felt like there was a finger from somewhere else touching them and just going, you, even if you wanted to see things a certain way, you can't. You just see like, well, this painting has to be this way because it's the only way it makes sense to me. And uh-huh. I think that a lot of times that's what draws us into any kind of art is we're like, who would see that? How does this make mm-hmm. sense for someone, but I'm connecting to it and my brain or my aesthetic or tastes or preferences doesn't naturally or inherently think that it likes that. But as it turns out, I really do like that. I, I love that, right. like cresting that hill. Like who who came up with that? And it's like, it, it's me when I'm making it, but like, I don't tend to think about that. I'm usually just like, that's the right decision um, or that's the wrong decision. I tend to forget about that, that like you're creating things that other people like. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm so in my studio all the time, it's like I'm alone. So I'm always just kind of doing stuff for me, but it is really for the public too. But it's like this audience is also in my head. It's kind of imaginary, um, but it works. It's like when you take it out and then the, like someone sees it and they and they have a similar reading or or or, or something completely out of nowhere and, and it still registers within the constellation of like ideas, it's kind of remarkable. And then you're like, oh yeah, I guess that is interesting. That <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious what your thoughts are on someone like Basquiat because educated, uh-huh. you know, family kind of tied into the arts world, kind of knowing maybe ways to manipulate that to say, oh, you know what sells, you know what's big. And you could throw stuff on canvas pretty quickly to go, but if you look at each one individually, it feels very specifically like, no, that went there. That has to go there. This color pop, even yeah. though it looks just kind of ab- kind of emotional. It looks like something it's, spackled or, or thrown at the canvas. It was very intentional. And some are like really, really intricate. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know this until more recently, but like some of the work is like almost really dense. And some of it is really like kind of loose but you see that there's this, like all these different kinds of um, ideas in his work. I sadly don't see enough of it because I, I I mean, I work in the art world a lot, so at galleries, but I haven't worked at that many galleries where Basquiat's come through um, only recently. And it was like, they were two small ones and they were like, they're okay. They're really shoddy, like they made. It was just like on a piece of wood Mm -hmm. that like, it was like, clearly he just made this, support structure like it wasn't really a canvas or it was i I don't remember but you get the sense that it was like um you know just finding a surface to paint on in a way and that that's good enough i go back and forth on that and that like similarly i haven't seen them in person and i know them only from maybe movies or documentaries and i'm i'm thinking of like a documentary where you know he got pretty well known and he was going to be distributed and shown in galleries around the world. And he had to come up with a body of work kind of quickly. And there's footage of him, I think in Venice, California on a skateboard, just kind of zooming around this place where some of those things you're talking about, big pieces of wood or large canvases are leaned against the wall. And he's just one after another, throw it like painting them. And it Uh. felt like the takeaway at the end from him was it is art. They'd be like, but you're just kind of racing around. And he goes, yeah, anything I do is art. You know, I'm, I've yeah. gotten to this level and therefore whether I do it kind of hastily or I take forever, it's art because it's me. And that ego, that level, do you kind of need that somewhere? Even if it's not on the surface, do you need like this artist's ego to go, I, I don't care. This is good. I know it's good to me. 
you have to have a lot of confidence that like this this will work mm -hmm. um even if it's like failing too right like that's the interesting thing with some artists where they're like the work isn't working but they continue to work on it until it's like finally it's done mm -hmm. and that's that's really hard um i'm not sure if you've seen this uh documentary just came out it's like it's andy warhol's um diaries it's like on netflix i'm interested i watched the um velvet underground one and i okay. i wasn't as familiar with andy warhol and kind of his whole I, you know i knew the the labels and some of his sure. um, the films where he would just have people sit there but yeah i'm very interested in that like uh, it's totally worth watching because you um there's everything that we know about warhol and then there's so much that we don't. And mm -hmm. he um, he recorded these diaries through somebody else. Like he would dictate to somebody and they would write it down. So it's a really bizarre process. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like another work for him. Um, but you just see all these areas um, in which everything is a work for him. It's like he did this thing where he would just clear off his whole desk once a week or once a month and put that into a box. And that would be a time capsule. And he did this for a very long time. Um, so he's got like all these different aspects that like really show more complex kind of personality mm -hmm. and, um, and his relationship with Basquiat is very interesting because it's, it shows that it's like a lot longer than most of us imagine. It's that it's like, um, that they are, they're very, very close friends and partners, I believe. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know. I, I think I need to think more and maybe look more at, at both those artists, particularly Basquiat, because I haven't given him maybe enough um, attention in my life. But when yeah. you uh, when you reached out for this recording, or vice versa, I maybe said like, "Hey, how you know? Do, do you want to come do this show?" Uh, even though we had the the lost man, what imagine okay. what that thing's worth? If they can <laughs> dig that up, someone will be able to restore it. The lost Sean Micah interview from Professor Blastoff, but. You said this time, like, oh, I have a studio now. And so there's a level up there of like, hey, I'm, I'm working as an artist and full-time all the time. That seems like such an enormous accomplishment. And if you, if you go back to any artist's formative years or early years, and there's, I think it made fun of a lot of like, oh, I have some of my paintings up at this coffee shop and I can't pay my taxes or any of my bills. I'm an artist. I can't be bothered with that. And you're like, hey, you're a, you're a young person and you're very privileged to be able to afford paint. Please mm -hmm. ring up my coffee. You work here. You're here right now. And they're like, sorry. And that's a made up character. But I think we all kind of- the character exists. They, they for sure exist. See them a lot in the two places we live, New York and LA. And they they get made fun of a lot, but there's also some, I'm sure, difficulty in knowing: am I them or am I like am I Basquiat working behind this counter? And this maybe goes back to ego again. But how do you stay focused and stay feeling like an artist, knowing I want to get to where I have my own studio, mm -hmm. but I can't take myself that seriously yet? Or do you always have to take yourself like I am a studio artist? And you guys just don't know it yet. Here's your latte. Get out of here. You have to be deranged. I think you have to really believe that, that, um, I don't know. It's, I, I have like shame associated with this now, but I didn't when I was younger. Like, uh -huh. um, now I'm like, Oh, that's a little entitled to think that I could just do this and call it art. But, um, I, I wouldn't get anywhere. I wouldn't be where I was. I wouldn't be where I am now if I 
didn't have that attitude, I think. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, you kind of have to be berserk and kind of just really um, take a lot of chances and do a lot of things that aren't necessarily good for your future. <laughs> like I did, you know, I'm only really recently starting to think about, you know, things like health insurance, uh, having a, a retirement, you know, and stuff like that. Like for years, I didn't have health insurance because the paint was more important or, you know, mm -hmm. I lived in a really, really like really kind of, I lived in an apartment that, that apartment I lived in first in New York had like no heat. Um, the water would go off quite frequently. I, I had a really bonkers uh, landlord. Um, but you kind of did these things because my rent was like 700 bucks. Like I was like splitting it with two people, but um, you kind of make it work. Mm -hmm. But now I could never like do that. Like I wouldn't have the, <laughs> I'd be just too tired all the time. <laughs> but, um, I had a friend on this show early on, uh, Kyle McGinn, who's a poet. And he was like, people make fun of poets like they're the most elitist, but you venture into it. It's the opposite because you're knowingly not going to make much money. No one's yeah. going to care. People are going to make fun of you. You have to do it because you love it. And artists or being in a band, some of these things, they blur that line a little because you could have- They're some, more luxurious. For sure. and But the story, if you get to live in that place with no heat and sit around with people afterward, they're kind of envious of like, that's a grassroots story. If someone's yeah, sitting there yeah. next to you and they came from generational wealth and they're like, oh, well, I snuck down to the study and had- uh, an assistant yeah, yeah. come bring me paints. I still made great work, but I never got to feel what you felt, which is I'm all in on this. I, I paint, I've, I've made some choices that I'm not going to put on a tie and battle traffic yeah. and go do this other thing. I'm, I live for this. And that's, that's such a unique existence. I feel. The, the funny thing is like my very first show was in a coffee shop and it was a friend that had it. Like she worked the, the cash register. She was like, I create shows at this coffee shop. And I saw it did some paintings, hung them there. Um, and like, I don't know, it's like, it, it's not that far from the truth to, to kind of say those things that you're saying. And then also that painting, um, I built the stretchers for that. And I think I stole all of the paint and brushes for it because my <laughs> friend worked at Pearl and I would buy like one thing, but I'd show up with like a whole basket and he would just like throw everything into a bag. So, I got a, my career kind of started by like doing things you shouldn't necessarily do, but it got me to making the work mm -hmm. in a way. Um, risks I shouldn't have taken, but I think you kind of have to do that sort of stuff because you're just so driven to make the painting or the work. Um, it's interesting. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'm answering the question or. I think I think, so. I think it's no. I think it's um, it's like an ethos or something. Or and and there's a, an ecosystem within it. When I would ski in college, always so poor, we're always just barely getting there with enough gas money, and we'd find these mm -hmm. deals to get season passes for outrageously affordable rates. Where the more days we went, the less it cost us to ski and. There, that's always existed in that community. Ski bums. I work the lift, and then a buddy of mine swaps out their wristband, and then I go ski. And the people that take ridiculously lavish vacations there 
kind of make up the other end of that. So the resort itself right. is kind of like, that's part of it. That's the ecosystem. The, yeah. the the poor kids that live to be on that hill, just experiencing the snow, they're going to do what it takes to get up there. And we'll kind of look the other way because they love it. And then they inspire the people riding up the lift in really expensive gear to want to be like yeah. that. So they have right. some value. So your friend passing out the brushes, if I'm the head of Pearl Art Supplies, maybe I see that and I go, that's okay because he's going to paint something so beautiful because he loves yeah. it. He has to have those brushes when someone gets bored at home. Someone maybe in a mansion goes, I'm going to take up painting. Yeah. And they come and they spend a bunch of money and Pearl's like, it worked out. <laughs> the, the, well, the, a frustrating thing is that there are people that, that do that. And, and then they have like shows because they have that like, um, connection of wealth because someone's like, oh, well, I know a lot of people that will want to buy this person's paintings because they're that wealthy person. And it's like, yeah, it's this generational, um, it's the, like the dynasty thing. And that's like all over the place in their world, which is weird. Um, You're, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so curious on your thoughts on this on like how can art straddle it or can it be in between? And I think that was maybe one of the things with, Andy Warhol with like painting the soup thing or, you know, things that weren't so um, pretentious. And there was this, there was this piece here, like somewhere near UCLA, this dentist had retired and he just started going down. I wish I knew his name because it was one of the best art things I've ever seen. He would go down uh, to the beach and find homeless people. And what he didn't like was that these oil paintings we know of, of being like of barons and my grandfather's father. Right. And he walked down this hallway and you you had to have such uh, so many resources to afford someone to come in and yeah. you had to sit there. He was like, I'm going to have someone who has none of those resources sit there and I'll paint them and they'll tell me their story. And so you would see this person with a lot of life and pain in their face captured mm. by him. And then underneath would be just a story of what happened, how they became homeless. And it was oh, wow. a lot of trauma, a lot of things where you would, it's crushing. It was, but it was beautiful to then look back up at the face and be like, in the eyes, there's still some, there's dignity and there's a feeling of like, I get to be painted and I get to be treated like a person. And like, I still have value. Sure. I loved yeah. it. And I think of your work and it's so refined. And if I walked into one of my friend's studio apartments in Reno, Nevada with an ashtray full of cigarette butts, and I saw one of your paintings on the wall, I'd be like, what? This doesn't fit at all here. This, you should have a poster of a Lamborghini on the wall, or you know, there, it shouldn't be this beautiful, very detailed, very focused piece of fine art. And that's kind of a bummer that we think that way. Like, but maybe mm. my friend with the cigarette butts would have it because it's something to dream about. It's a world that can transport them. I want to be in a place where that art fits. That my cigarette. And also, it's the altar of that that world so it might fit nicely too mm -hmm. because it's just like a different kind of thing yeah i mean it's a nice clash you know um yeah it's 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 always pe peculiar where your work ends up i tend i tend to not think about it too much um because you never know mm -hmm. what happens and i don't know if that's that can be kind of weird <laughs> um. <laughs> well, if you start having shows and when things get out of your control, you know, and maybe you're painting it. So I would do stand up for voices in my head who are always like in the back of the room. And like mm -hmm. you were saying, that might not always be the best thing because maybe mm -hmm. you miss something. Maybe you walk out of a room where they, they go, that crowd hated you. And you're like, I don't care. I don't, 
They're not my, they're not the group I'm playing to. I'm playing right, right. to this, they, they don't, they wouldn't like my art. You know, that's not going to suit you well. You got to figure out a way to like appeal to more people. And yeah. if you do, but you got to continue to just commit to your, your process or your act, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, otherwise, you know, you're not you. And you're going out and you're kind of, I was, I would always liken it to painting. Are you standing there with your back to the crowd, just painting and then turning around going here, you have to like that. Are you letting them in <laughs> so much where you're like yellow right here? Okay. How about this? What, some red? Okay. Whatever you want, then you're not really yeah. painting. You're, you're just kind of assisting them in doing something. So there's right, like right, give and right. take. And even when you're in your studio alone, so say you something started to take off in a crazy way and you'd be like, oh, I know if I do one of these pieces, it would sell for X amount of dollars, which is crazy to think about. And that that's a world that exists. But yeah. you would have to wonder, like, how would you feel there, you know, if if it's only affordable to this certain echelon of society? Well, you hear in that uh, Warhol documentary, he has anxiety at, at a certain point because his career is like stagnant. And it's not really going anywhere. And he's like, maybe I should just go back to the soup cans again. And he <laughs> says it very reluctantly, like, because he's like, Ugh, am I just like a one act, you know, person? Mm-hmm. Um, but he knows that it's like it will help support his lifestyle or maybe it will help um fund other projects you know yeah so it's tricky i mean the work that i make it's complicated to some degree in the sense that it's meant to throw questions um or mirror the art world to some degree because there are objects that are from auction catalogs um and the auction market in the art world or like rather the secondary market is this um, area where things reach um, atmospheric prices that are very unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, like a painting that's worth the value of a house or a small island. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's there's no need for that, right? Um, so in my titles, there's usually like a description from the catalog and usually I, I try to include the price of that work or that I- item to kind of get at the arbitrariness of of that um and a hope in a way like i guess some people will be find that um disgusting they'll be repulsed which is more where i where i would go but some people might actually like like that in a way that they might eroticize it or fetishize it and the work that i do kind of sits in this area that like oscillates those poles which is interesting um but I'm not at that point where like my work isn't, it's it's like affordable art to a certain degree. Um, but I still like struggle to make ends meet. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> It seems that. it seems unanswerable to me because I, I I wonder how many artists are perfectly content at lifestyle output um catalog of work respect of it you know if you are like i just make soup cans I, people like it I, yeah I go, right you know maybe you're a little disappointed or maybe you're like bob ross made the same type of painting all the time and seemed to love it every time yeah can't get too upset at that i mean he seemed to enjoy it it inspired a lot of people i think people in in the fine art world would be like ugh, but how do you define art? How do you find, define what it's worth? Or was he just kind of a, a mover and a shaker who was, you know, selling a, a quick way to fake 
being an artist. I don't know. I think some people would maybe say that and other people would go, I don't know, like my aunt got really into it and she churned out some pretty sweet paintings and it, it helped her, her mental state. So yeah. if, if that's what art is meant to do, then I think he did pretty well with that. But yeah, again, going back to the, the finger touching, like you're only going to see it. It's only going to make sense to you this way. You might mm-hmm. do the soup cans. And then that little decision maker goes, mm-mm. I don't care if I'm back to being homeless and sneaking onto trains and getting kicked off of them in the middle of the desert. I have to go here and do, this is the most artistic way to be alive for me. And sometimes I would imagine you get mad at that voice, like just do the thing that's smart so we can pay our bills. Yeah, so we can pay our bills. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's tricky. Like I, I did a show about like 10 years ago. Um, it was these like satellite photographs of, of earth. And um, it was a thing called uh, Landsat that NASA had done this. Like they sent the satellite up, took pictures of the, the world. And in a way, it was kind of like NASA showing, like, we know more about the world than you than you do. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's kind of like us saying, we know more about your agricultural systems than you do. Mm-hmm. And it's a, kind of a power move in a way, because it's like the more knowledge we have, the more we can kind of control like food growth um or say um uh irrigation and water um supplies so i i thought i always thought this like kind of very interesting and in that same period in the 60s there's like uh um like this sort of um deregulation of of like economic policies and um breaking down of unions so you have this like a the, the birth of neoliberal kind of thinking in economics so i thought like okay i should make paintings about that like i'll do the paintings of this thing and it will be kind of if i do it now in like 2000 it, it can kind of be about climate change but from this like legislative economic way so you can think about like why are we where we're at now because we we kind of um it, it's capitalism in a lot of ways but anyway long story short i did this show like 10 years ago and it was about all of these things because that stuff kind of matters mm-hmm. and an artist um just mounted a show in New York. This this guy that's much more um, famous, uh, for lack of a better word, <laughs> but he's the same age as me in mm-hmm. a way. Um, and, and at this very very big gallery, and it's like the same show, but with none of the thought. Uh, yeah. And I and I, a friend of mine commented, "Oh, the more climate change." It, it's like I, I actually I was speaking. I spoke to someone at the gallery. And they were like, yeah, I don't think the artist is thinking about climate change at all. Mm-hmm. And there are these, there are paintings about um, hurricanes. So it is about um, the sort of uh, the greater, the, the, the increased amount of hurricane activity due to climate change. So it's like, you, it's, it's really weird because he's kind of um, focusing on something, but completely blind to it, mm-hmm. which, um, it's frustrating for me because you're like, hey, I did this show that nobody knows about because like it was in a small gallery that was like a not-for-profit space. It did get like a review mm-hmm. in an art magazine, like an art forum on like the very first day. And I was like, that was like a really cool thing. But then like nobody knows about it. And then this guy has this show. It's in a gallery, gets a lot more press. So that that was like a frustrating thing when I was like, well, at least I did the thing that mattered. At least I like I put in the work. Like their paintings... At the end of the day, they're just paintings, but there was a lot of like um, work done to make them 
have a meaningful impact on the culture um, to some degree. They, they weren't just made to make rich people richer. Right. Which I think is the thing that I tell people sometimes. It's like, you know, do you want to just make art for yourself or do you want to make art to make rich people richer? And that's like the thing you just, you figure out some like thing and then it works. And then you just keep repeating that, I guess. Yeah. But I don't, I don't want to like diss people that also find something that works and like, you know, you know, have a pity party because they're successful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, there are, I mean, some of the people, Skyladder, I'm trying to think of that documentary. This guy's just obsessed with doing this like fireworks display that looks like a gigantic ladder to the sky, like a ladder to the heavens. And I've heard of that, yeah. It's interesting because the body of work he had created prior to that, to me, substantiated getting to take a risk or do something that big. And I, I like if you're an artist and so for how much? Ten million dollars? Oh, that's almost enough to make this next thing I want to make. If you know, like that, that's so inspiring to be like, oh, they did what? Yeah, yeah. They just went out and bought like all this old shipyard castaway metal and they spent a decade welding it and this is their new thing. And then maybe it would blow our minds and we'd be like, who sees the world that way? And then that made them a hundred million dollars and they went and did something bigger. I love that, that that you could never make a true artist wealthy because they would just find new ways to turn it into more art. That's true, yeah. But yeah. I, I mean, who's living that? Who's doing that? I don't yeah. know if that exists. Well, I mean, there's there's some artists that are doing that, but there's a lot more that don't, and they we tend to focus on them, like Jeff Koons, and you're like, he's just, he's not really doing much thinking or, you know. <laughs> but how sweet. He's just like, oh, I saw this creek and I painted it and I made a half a million dollars. Pretty cool Tuesday. <laughs> You know, people be like, that's a, that's a nice life. You seem happy. Why wouldn't you be? Yeah. But the problem is when you get to that level, how many people can buy that work? Yeah. And so you do have this area where like, um, when, when an artist gets, when their, when their value is like overinflated, like not, there's not enough people, there's not enough millionaires that can afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is an interesting thing that I learned over the pandemic is that there's more billionaires in America than there are in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so the art market, when the pandemic shut everything down, did better, I think, in, in the U.S. than it did in the EU because there were more people, like there were more rich people at home willing to like spend money buying buying a JPEG or something. Yeah. Um, so there's all these other things that like you know that 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 make that that possible. Like you have to have all these rich people or wealthy people patrons in order to make that function, and then you have to have like good patrons, you know, because there's lots of bad ones that are like, yeah. <sighs> um, people that will kind of want to gatekeep the world, you know, and, and particularly only collect certain kinds of art in order to preserve a kind of vision of society. Right. That's like the kind of bad ones or the bad ones might just be buying stuff to flip it to like, yeah. um, like real estate people in mm-hmm. a way. What you want is to find like patrons that are like really listening to the artists or, or really listening to the the, the 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 critics and the historians that like wrote about something 10 years ago that makes that work relevant now or something you know and that's really hard to find that those patrons are, are really rare mm-hmm. um and the last show i did too actually so i did all these drawings of patrons to kind of comment on like we're in this like new world where everything, everyone's like kind of going through an advisor. So there's not that many patrons anymore. There's not many individual patrons. Um, 
So we're just kind of in this very new world where there's like people shopping for other people, people buying art for other people, people like, I don't know, there's just a new, new um, frontier, I guess. I'm like kind of rambling. I don't know if I'm going in that direction. No, it ties into, I think like a prevailing thought or, or just kind of like an underpinning to all this is, and I think of it from when musicians used to get on stage and you would hear this thing, oh, I went to the concert, but I don't like when in between songs they're you know talking about politics, just play the music. Right. I, you know, I grew up in an area where I, I just had, had glommed onto that. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Like did pay some money to hear these songs. I didn't really want to hear how I should focus more on the way I'm getting rid of my waste from my household or, you know, whatever their, their thing was. Whatever the, whatever the message was. <laughs> whatever the message was like, hey, in between those two great songs, I had some rambling about, uh, but in hindsight, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you throw an avocado piss in your compost, guys, please. You're like, just play the hits. And uh, that over time, when you look back, like, wait, this band travels. They go city to city. They see everyone and everything. They see the people lined up outside their concert. They see who gets to afford to be in the front and who's in the back. They see a, a much wider swath or cross-section of society than you do at home, getting told by your uncle, they should just play the songs. And you being an artist taking the subway or wherever you are where you're around humanity and you see a town car go by with someone who might buy art, maybe your art, maybe someone else's, and you're, you're constantly being like getting these little stimuli that define what the world is to you, whether it's trash or recycling or people's approach to climate change based on where they are in the socioeconomic structure that artists need to have, in my mind, it's just, that is a foundational like bedrock thing. They have to experience that. Cause then how else can you communicate to people? You can't say. And all house would they experience Like they, they're, they're not living in a total vacuum. Like that's affecting their everyday life. Mm -hmm. Like, so of course they're going to like talk about it or they're going to write a song about it, but the song is so abstract or they just put it into like, you know, poetry that they need to then be like, here's what this song means to me, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, the only thing I think of is when, um, this is more recent, but Rage Against the Machine got a lot of flack for being Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> and all these people were like, wait, you guys are a political band? Why don't you shut up? And they're like, what do you think we were raging against? But then the other like, side, which I loved, they have that side mad. They have this side that's like, what? What? The lyrics are about, I love you. I blast you. Like, you were exactly who we were speaking against. We hate you. <laughs> then on the other side, there's the people that got the lyrics, that disliked the machine. They're like, I'm going to go support this band. Tickets are $500. You're the machine now. It just felt like no yeah. one was satisfied by what they had grown into and become. And that kind of goes back to what we're talking about. You, The art world will lift you up and turn you into whatever kind of balloon it inflates you into. And then you are just at the mercy of floating around going, well, we're huge. We can't charge $40 for a ticket. We're a gigantic band and we need to have resources for, you know, our children, or maybe we want to do things with climate change initiatives and it would help us to have a hundred million dollars. Mm -hmm. But like everyone that started a cult or whatever it might be with good intentions, they're probably just in larger than they need houses thinking next maybe. week I'll get going on that thing. But right now the pool <laughs> feels pretty nice. I mean, America is like defined by its excesses, right? Like, uh, or it's described, maybe not defined. <laughs> um, and that's a sad thing, I guess, you know, it's kind of gross that we see that. 
Um, but it does give you like focus to um, focus to what to oppose, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's tricky. Um, yeah. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I keep doing this. Hey, that's okay. It's, we, yeah. um, maybe let's take a little break real quick and then um, sure. zero in on a, a target. Come back for part two. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. We get a little more into his personal life, his history, background, influences. Uh, talk about his music as well and how people who are creative a lot of times do lots of things creatively. And I don't know why we kind of view that as, oh, this actor decided to try to be a singer. People who make things and or are creative tend to do it in a variety of mediums. So we talk about that and a lot of other things. Um, If I do find the lost episode somewhere on a drive or something, I'll put it on the Patreon. Thanks to those of you who do support the show there. Um, I'll I'll put uh, a couple things, including um, a sample episode of Intercepts up there pretty soon. I'm not sure when that show is going to launch out into the world, but I'll keep you posted. And something like the Patreon is the best place to support this show. So thanks to those of you who do support the show on Patreon. Uh, Do my best to add little bonus things, behind the scenes things. And I appreciate the support. This show is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. Thanks to Rob Crow for the theme song. Thanks to you for listening. Come back for part two with Sean. And here's a song by the High Violets called Up Towards... I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.